together, you and I are about to embark on a non-linear road trip through popular culture. A subjective history tour chronicling the histories and legacies of the coolest movies and television shows ever made. This season, it's David Zucker, Jim Abrams, and Jerry Zucker's landmark 1980 parody, Airplane. From the movies and comedians that paved the way for the funniest movie in recorded history, to its contemporaries and the filmmakers it inspired, we're bouncing backwards and forwards through time for a salute to comedy on film and the fine cinematic art of orchestrated anarchy. So come along with me, your wonky yet affable host Ryan Luis Rodriguez, for season two of The Coolness Chronicles, The Shirley Chronicles. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... Uh... Well, we've warned you. Listen, I'm going to kill next at the football game. Click. Did you hang up? No, I just said click. There were many other non-Zucker, Abram-Zucker related parodies in the 1980s. Actually, maybe that's misrepresentative. There were uh, a couple. A baker's couple, maybe. But today I want to do something fun and potentially interesting by focusing on a cool subgenre, horror parody, with three installments of horror-influenced comedy, Saturday the 14th, Student Bodies, and Unmasked, Part 25. It's a tale that involves countless unconvincing monster costumes, unwarranted R ratings, and the tragic romance between a blind girl and a hockey mask-wearing mass murderer. No, it's not, Jason. And no, you can't sue, because the statute of limitations has passed. Or it hasn't. I'm not a lawyer. I've pretended to be a doctor on my best-selling book cover and got away with it, but I digress. On with the show! The 80s, hack and slash and joke. We begin this week with the most misleading title, 1981's Saturday the 14th. It gets bad on Friday the 13th, but it gets worse on Saturday the 14th. The book of evil! Evil? Evil. Richard Benjamin, Paula Prentice. We've inherited a house with a curse. Oh, come on, Mary. You know you don't believe in curses. Well, somebody did the dishes, and we're the only ones in this house. An innocent family driven absolutely batty. Just when you thought it was safe to look at the calendar again comes Saturday the 14th. The year's number one horror comedy spoof. Be sure to see it before sunrise. Saturday the 14th. Do not be fooled by this title. Although the film is set primarily on the day after Friday the 13th, Saturday the 14th has absolutely nothing to do with Jason Voorhees on any level. Unlike another movie we'll be discussing shortly. 
Instead, it's a somewhat affectionate parody of the likes of House of Dracula and House of Frankenstein, but given that the producer was New World Pictures, no strangers to capitalizing on trends to boost their marketing campaigns, it's not at all surprising that they would pull such a tactic. It also speaks to how much of a phenomenon Friday the 13th was, that studios would produce movies with no elements of slashers whatsoever and reference the title, probably to confuse potential audiences into thinking they were in for a sequel. Saturday the 14th stars real-life married couple and deeply charismatic duo Richard Benjamin and Paul Apprentice as a happily married couple and parents of two who are bequeathed a cursed home after the death of Benjamin's uncle, which I believe was one of the most popular sitcom tropes of the 1960s. Upon moving in, their youngest child discovers a book of evil, a book that, once open, transports monsters into the house and sets a series of increasingly ominous events into motion. Monsters that look like rejects from an off-brand spirit store, and ominous events like a television that only plays the Twilight Zone. So it's not that ominous. What are you going to do? Sue me. Complicating matters is the baldest vampire in cinematic history, Jeffrey Tambor as, I guess, Dracula wearing Count Floyd's cape, who wants to get his hands on the book for reasons that are ultimately unimportant and consequently not revealed until the very last second. Then the entire picture devolves into Tambor and his mortal enemy Van Helsing shooting sparks at each other for what feels like 40 minutes of a mercifully short 77-minute runtime. The film is pretty tiresome, almost entirely witless, and I'm not sure what, uh, what exactly I was expecting. I didn't think it would be good per se, I just went in with a shrug and left mildly annoyed. I'm trying to think of a joke that actually landed, and I got nothing. I'm not saying that there isn't a good joke in the picture, I'm just stressing that if there is one, it slid off my brain in real time. Honestly, I'm, I'm actually amazed that I can recount anything from it for this podcast, because I'm still not sure that I actually watched it or that it actually exists. I'm proud of myself for putting in the least amount of effort for something in which everyone involved did so as well. It's movie-shaped, I guess, movie-adjacent. The only moment where I was actually engaged was when Benjamin and Prentice's teenage daughter takes a bath with Mr. Bubble in it. Not because I wanted to see her naked, I didn't, that's gross, but because I was worried that she would get a urinary tract infection. And if you start fretting about a fictional character's UTIs instead of actually enjoying something, that's probably a bad sign. For some reason, the director seems to have told Richard Benjamin, quote, there's nothing funny for you to do in the script, so just smirk. And when y'all smirked out, direct every line slightly to the left of the camera lens. Don't look at it directly, just slightly to the left. And the audience will wonder why you're doing it and be puzzled into hilarity. To which Benjamin issued an enthusiastic, can do. The film relies on gags that are less jokes and more references. Early on, Prentice returns from the grocery store with Talbot-branded Wolfbane, which is not a laugh. It's a, oh, I see what you did there. Very amusing. Or Van Helsing commenting on Benjamin and Prentice's baby on the way by saying, Remember Rosemary? She had a baby. Yes, I am familiar with that much better film. Thank you for reminding me. I almost forgot. The same year as Saturday the 14th, 
Paramount Pictures decided to satirize their own slasher property with a parody of the subgenre before it had become fully formed, a 1981 film called Student Bodies. <sighs> Hello, it's me, the heavy breather from every horror film you've ever seen. You know me, first I terrorize my victim by the telephone, <sighs> then I choose my murder weapon, a gun, Nah, too easy. Uh, a hatchet? Nah, I always use a hatchet. For this movie, I want something very frightening and deadly. Ah. Then I climb the stairs to surprise my victims. Why do they always live upstairs? This movie's a comedy, so killing's not so easy. The movie's called Student Bodies, so I picked a typical American high school. This is Mr. Peters, your principal. Mr. Peters! You're naked! Yes, Toby. All these years I've been secretly naked underneath my clothes. A killer comedy! I find Paramount's relationship to the slasher intensely fascinating. It's no secret that the studio was ashamed of what was their most profitable franchise, Friday the 13th, feeling that it was a blemish on an otherwise pristine, prestigious filmography. Their words, not mine. But they never made any bones about exploiting the series in every possible way that they could. I mean, how else could you explain eight installments in nine years, or a completely unrelated three-season television series, or student bodies for that matter? The film opens with a scene that plays as a parody of both the opening of John Carpenter's Halloween and the 1979 thriller When a Stranger Calls, set on Jamie Lee Curtis's birthday, just in case you needed to know where the baseline of reference was. A young woman babysitting gets a call from a mysterious entity known only as The Breather, played by comedian Richard Belzer under the pseudonym Richard Brando, a heavy-breathing sicko who terrorizes the local sex-obsessed high schoolers. If you've seen any of the movies Student Bodies is picking on, and chances are you have, you know that the actors in the cold open never survive long enough to become real characters, and soon we're on to the real quote-unquote story. Over the course of the next 86 minutes, the breather sets about killing these lustful teens with increasingly eccentric implements, from stabbing them with straightened paper clips to bludgeoning them with eggplants and even suffocating them in heavy garbage bags. It's up to young Toby Badger, played by Kristen Ryder, not to be confused with Jessica Jones actress Kristen Ritter, to save the day. And by the time we actually learn the breather's identity, the entire film collapses into utter incoherence, which could either be the result of too many cooks in the kitchen, or just piss-poor filmmaking. I'm not sure which, and I don't really care. Unlike the next film we're going to discuss, Student Bodies is very much a parody in the vein of Zucker, Abrams, and Zucker. Every confirmed kill is announced with an on-screen death counter, which shows an awareness of the subgenre that seems actually prescient in retrospect, especially considering that the most egregious of these slashers were still years off, before they would devolve into almost pornographic levels of bloodshed at the expense of actual character. Everyone in student bodies, with the exception of Toby, are merely lambs for the slaughter. 
Unlike these increasingly violent films, however, the film hews closer to Halloween territory, avoiding any potential bloodshed, which strikes me as strange considering the film's R rating. In fact, Student Bodies is very much a PG-level film, PG-13 in modern terms, and those responsible acknowledge this explicitly. About 28 minutes in, the narrative is interrupted to introduce a man who doesn't appear in the film proper, sitting at a desk, who breaks the fourth wall to address the audience. Ladies and gentlemen, in order to achieve an R rating today, a motion picture must contain full frontal nudity, graphic violence, or an explicit reference to the sex act. Since this film has none of those, and since research has proven that R-rated films are by far the most popular with the movie-going public, the producers of this motion picture have asked me to take this opportunity to say, fuck you. Student Bodies was somewhat buried at the box office, which could be a result of the pursuit of an R rating instead of pursuing a younger crowd, but it found its audience on late-night cable, which ultimately feels appropriate. It's not terribly naughty, it's just naughty enough to feel like a discovery for teenagers. And if that discovery happens to be on USA Up All Night, the better. It's an interesting film, one whose impact has been dulled in the years that followed, but entirely for reasons that the filmmakers couldn't have possibly predicted. There's no way anyone involved could have read the tea leaves and seen the release of Scary Movie on the horizon in the next two decades. A bleeding-edge, R-rated parody that makes student bodies feel quaint in retrospect, more of a softball than it probably felt like at the time of its release. But, since the subgenre was deconstructed by Kevin Williamson and Wes Craven the following decade with Scream, student bodies does feel like a warning sign of things to come. It's easy to dismiss, but it was wading into these waters first. It's obviously not nearly as successful as Scream in terms of the overall effect, but I like to think that it died so that Scream may live. Student Bodies was there at ground zero, really at a time when slashers were more of an American giallo than something that audiences were savvy about, able to peer into the Matrix and see the formula that was carried over from film to film, before the subgenre became inundated with sequel after sequel, which provides a natural transition to the next film up for discussion, but first... Student Bodies was written and directed by early Woody Allen collaborator Mickey Rose, who co-wrote Bananas and Take the Money and Run. But depending on what source you trust, it was co-directed by an uncredited Michael Ritchie. I want to throw some water on this particular fire. While I enjoyed some of Student Bodies, there is no possible way that the director of Downhill Racer, Prime Cut, and The Bad News Bears shot a single frame of footage of this film. It has since been confirmed that Ritchie produced the film under the pseudonym Alan Smithy, but please, let's do away with the fallacy that he stepped behind the camera at any point. Thank you, won't we? Moving on, our last film this week is arguably the greatest achievement of all the non-Zaz parodies we've discussed over the past week, a cross between a Friday the 13th parody and a straight horror film 1988's Unmasked Part 25. Perhaps we can be friends. I'd like that, wouldn't you? <laughs> Pardon me?
kill me, are you? Look, I understand. Everybody has a bad day now and then. Everyone's entitled to it. But killing people isn't going to solve anything. If only there was something more. It just all seems so pointless. If Student Bodies is a satire of the slasher subgenre during its nascent period, striking while the iron is hot, Unmasked Part 25, as the title suggests, is a lampoon of the subgenre at peak saturation. By the time this parody arrived on home video, bypassing theaters, which is a real shame, the Friday the 13th series was about to hit its nadir with an eighth installment, Jason Takes Manhattan. While the makers of Unmasked Part 25 couldn't have possibly predicted what is generally considered a low moment in that enduring franchise, they could sense which direction the wind was blowing. The concept for this film is actually quite novel in retrospect. Friday the 13th movies typically revolve around a collection of disposable victims and one final girl, but Unmasked Part 25 flips the script and makes the lumbering mass murderer the protagonist. By adding a couple letters, Jason becomes Jackson, a hulking brute hiding a soft heart beneath his hockey mask and blood-soaked clothes. As part of the character's backstory, Jackson had drowned at a summer camp decades earlier, having been presumed dead. The film suggests that he only became a killer after fending for himself in the woods surrounding the summer camp, an object of fear and scorn which eventually manifested in homicidal impulses that he cannot, and maybe will not, resist. Further complicated by the public's fascination with his exploits through a fictionalized movie version of Jackson, currently on its 25th sequel. After hacking his way through a party in London, some kills including ripping a man's face off and punching his heart through his chest, Jackson stumbles upon a blind girl named Shelley, the only person at the party who doesn't react to him with abject horror, which disarms him. Like Jason, Jackson appears to be mute, at least until Shelley actually attempts to engage with him, showing him the empathy that the universe has refused to provide, revealing the pathos at his core. I can speak. You can speak? I've never had anyone to talk to much. They never gave me a chance. Who? They always thought I was stupid. It doesn't matter. I think you're wonderful. I think it's wonderful that you can speak. You're very lucky. I want to know everything about you. I hate wearing this thing, this mask. But people expect it, you see. They think I'm a monster. What then emerges is, in a way, a relationship story. Almost Shakespearean in its melodrama, about a man at war with his trauma and inner demons desiring to be vulnerable with another human being feeling unworthy of being loved, but being loved all the same. If that doesn't sound hilarious, it's at this point that I'll stress that this is not a traditional spoof. It satirizes the conventions of slasher movies and includes a meta-wrinkle of hypothesizing how Jason Voorhees would cope in a universe where the Friday the 13th movies exist, but it's more of a pop-cultural Beauty and the Beast crossed with a legitimate horror film, surprisingly sweet and grisly, in equal doses. The relationship stuff as Jackson and Shelley quickly fall in love is often quite funny, 
as it's impossible not to find a reservoir of humor in placing Jason Voorhees in domestic settings. I mean Jackson. Did I say Jason? <laughs> I meant Jackson. This is not Jason. But where Unmasked Part 25 succeeds best is in refusing to make the proceedings one note. I am genuinely invested in where they go as a couple. I want to know how Shelley will help Jackson past his insecurities and darker impulses, that is, if she can. If they're not so deeply ingrained that it would be futile to even try. And even with all this, as I mentioned before, this is a legitimate horror film. Part of the filmmaker's deal in getting the film financed was that it functioned as a slasher. It could have comedic overtones, but it needed to fulfill some of the basics of the subgenre, as horror films were considered eminently profitable at the time. Accordingly, Unmasked Part 25 has more creative kills in its first 20 minutes than most contemporary slashers could manage over the course of an entire runtime. In addition to the aforementioned face-ripping and heart-punching, someone gets a broken light bulb through their mouth and out the back of their skull, and two lovers get pierced with a spear that then pierces a wall behind them. Itself a reference to both one of the Friday the 13th, I don't remember which because I don't care, and the brutal drill murder, the brutal drill murder in Brian De Palma's body double. The film has a sense of humor without feeling constantly arch or ironic, yet follows a mass murderer who beneath his mask looks like the toxic Avenger with a regal British accent who freely quotes Lord Byron, which is a tricky balance to strike. As I mentioned earlier, the film was released directly to video in the United States, which caused it to remain in obscurity for decades until Vinegar Syndrome remastered the picture and released it on Blu-ray and DVD. I can only hope that this increased visibility causes more people to discover this forgotten gem, which is honestly the second best Friday the 13th sequel after Jason Lives. And if, after I've spent 10 minutes verbally filleting the picture, you're not interested in seeking out Unmasked Part 25 for yourself, may you have your face ripped off, your heart punched through your chest. I mean, <laughs> did I say that? I didn't mean that. No, I love you. I mean, check it out, won't we? Next week, we're dialing back the clock for a deep dive into another landmark parody, Albert Brooks's reality television spoof before it was really a thing for 1979's Real Life, which will lead to a two-part discussion of Brooks's entire career, which includes such masterpieces as Modern Romance, Lost in America, and Defending Your Life. Stay tuned. And that is where we end this episode of The Shirley Chronicles. If you're a fan of the show, $5 gets you access to not just early broadcasts of every episode, but countless hours of bonus content, and super fun weekly minisodes every Friday that spin off from the weekly show exclusively at patreon.com slash coolnesschronicles. But before we take off for the week, it's the moment you've all been waiting for. It's Ryan's Recommendations. As I transition further into a born-again cinephile, I've been making amends, looking for films that I would have dismissed or been uninterested in years earlier, and trying to fill in my various blind spots. This week's recommendation is one that I had been aware of since its release in 1996, but didn't feel particularly compelled to view it as a 10-year-old dumbass. 
I finally got around to it recently and was absolutely blown away. I'm speaking, of course, about Microcosmos. Plunged for 24 hours into an unknown world for an adventure that takes place in the space of inches. In this universe, the hourglass of time accelerates. An hour for a day, a day for a season, a season for a lifetime. Imagine a nature documentary, something like Planet Earth, only remove the narration and focus in a little closer. No, closer, even closer. Microcosmos utilizes macro photography to detail the life of insects on this massive planet, at least from their perspective. Detailing a world that gets more interesting and complex the smaller you get. For a film that contains nary a single car chase or complicated gore effect or Marvel superhero for that matter, I was absolutely enthralled for 80 straight minutes. I definitely wouldn't have had the patience at age 10 to watch 80 minutes of the Sisyphean struggle of dung beetles or the daily trek of millipedes, but 35-year-old me could have sat for another three hours of this. I know for a fact that from now on, I shall be much more sensitive with how I dispatch with bugs. Unless we're talking about spiders in my bedroom. There are certain intruders I simply can't tolerate. The movie may be about insects, but by detailing the familiar functions of life, even at our smallest level, it's a reminder that empathy is our greatest possible trait. That we're all the same all over. Or maybe I'm reading into it too much. Maybe it's just about bugs. Microcosmos is currently for rent and purchase on Google Play and Amazon Prime, or you can help keep physical media alive and pick up the excellent Kino Lorber Blu-ray. For more reviews and recommendations, check out my Letterbox page at letterbox.com slash coolnesspodcast. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy what you hear, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your chosen source, locatable as The Coolness Chronicles, and share it with anyone you can, any way you can. This has been the largest and most fulfilling endeavor I've ever seen to completion, and it would be nice to keep making the show until it just isn't fun anymore. This is a 1,000% independent nonprofit podcast, and as such, we are markedly less visible. Every time you guys and gals spread the word, it assures that we can afford to record another day. Have any questions or comments? Have I missed anything so far in this series? Contact me on Twitter, at CoolnessPodRyan, Instagram, at The Coolness Chronicles, on Podchaser, or on our Facebook page, and keep on the lookout for updates. Also, check out the other podcast that I co-host, Reels of Justice, where every week we put a movie on trial to determine if it's guilty or innocent, of being a bad movie. The show is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you find fine, upstanding, well-groomed podcasts. Special thanks to the amazing Lacey Barker for all of our wonderful artwork, Bill Sherm for all of our wonderful music, and special, special thanks to our equally amazing patrons, Isabel T, Bobby L, Michael A, Ian C, T-Flex, Ian M, Kitty K, Kelly B, The Vern, Michael H, Mary M, Bill M, Christopher H, Christopher J, Tracy R, and Jenny R. Until next time, do what you love, don't be a dick, and take care.
the end.